this is where Texas politics gets interesting. Here again are two guys named Jason, some great guests, and cold Texas beer for another smart conversation on Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas. Hey, everybody. Welcome back for another episode of Yolitics. Uh, Jason, we have something to celebrate this time. Oh, did you bring me something back? Did you find something in your uh, leftover luggage? I am still searching for the souvenir that I definitely got you when I was in Europe. Uh, you know, things get misplaced. They go through your bags, whatever. It's I'll find it one of these days. Uh, no, what we're celebrating is, is um, for the past year or so, uh, I've been buried under a mountain of books. And I finally made it all the way through all the books. And I took a really long test. I just want to tell everybody out there, really appreciate your real estate professionals. They have to know a lot of material to be licensed in Texas. And guess who just got one of those licenses? Really? Congratulations, man. Thank you. No team. So <laughs> I love we have a cheering section that we haven't yeah. even told you about yet. I brought my own cheering section today. I need that in life. So is this, you, you insist this is not an escape hatch for you from this podcast, but I, I know how this podcast just wears on you all the time. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not an escape hatch from the podcast unless you turn this into a really toxic workplace instead of just a toxic workplace that you've created so far. So we'll, we'll see. No, uh, it, it, it's just so because, you know, for people who don't know, I also do a, a whole franchise, a whole segment uh, regularly called Ride on the Money. And it turns out that hmm. our Ride on the Money... Our ride, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. <laughs> you should watch every now and then. Our Ride on the Money reports are so often about renting, buying, selling, leasing, anything to do with real estate, because it affects everybody. Everybody's got to have a place to live, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, that's in fact what we're getting into today, because it's really tough these days for a lot of people here in Texas. Uh, and we've got some great uh, experts with us. What are you drinking though? Well, yeah, let me, let me raise a, a toast to you here, man. I'm having a, a dot matrix from equal parts brewing company from the wow. second ward in, oh, Houston, in Houston, in 713. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a black lager too. Awesome. I like lagers. Uh, I don't know if I've ever had a black lager. Is, is Guinness a black lager? Uh, I do not know. I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a stout. Guinness stout. Like a Guinness. I okay. Would, I would show you, but it'll spill yeah. out on the computer here. Let me know how that is. A, a black lager. Hmm. I used to uh, wow. deliver bread in all the different wards there in in Houston many years ago in a different lifetime. That's uh, and that's a true story too. That's not that's not a joke. Story. That's a true story. Ate a lot of those pies too. I cannot eat those pies anymore because of that. Wow. Uh, I am having a wild Texas Kolsch uh, today nice. uh, because you know we're talking about real estate in Texas and it's been wild. Housing in Texas has been <laughs> wild. And you know if you've been in the market at all or wanted to get into the market or decided to stay out of the market uh, because it's been so wild, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, this one, by the way, is from Taylor, Texas which is just to the northeast of Austin, which is where we find both of our expert guests today, by the way, Austin. But before we get into our guests, let me ask you, are you going to start selling houses or are you just doing this for research? Because No, I'm inactive. Uh, it's an inactive license, which allows me to have all of the information and to have done all of the education for it, but I'm not actually selling. It's just that I have a background because so often I found that, you know, I'm doing these real estate stories and I'm calling people over and over again going, can you explain this to me? I don't mm. understand how this is working. Interestingly, you know, a lot of them said, well, don't feel bad about not understanding. This market is different than anything I've seen in mm. 20 or 30 years. Uh, but, you know, I just, you know, I'm, I'm sure they got tired of me calling all the time. So I thought, well, I should probably have more of a knowledge base of my own here. 
Well, you know, I know you're a numbers guy, Jason. So let's let's get into the topic today. Yeah. This is something that they kind of I must have missed this stat when it came out in the Lyceum poll not too long ago. I believe it was Lyceum that had this. 52% of Texans believe they now spend too much of their income on housing costs. And housing-related costs are the largest expense category for Texans, regardless of income level. That's a little factoid I didn't realize until I started researching this topic for today. Uh, demand, obviously, outpacing supply. That's what we've been dealing with in every city across the state and across the country, really. But Texas has always had, you know, been an outlier in a lot of categories, but not for real estate anymore. Mm -hmm. So researchers at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at UT Austin, they identified five different ways to address this, not just for themselves, but they identified this for the lawmakers meeting right now in Austin for the 88th Texas legislature. So let's get straight to our guest. With us is uh, Stephen Pettigo. We've had Stephen on. You know, Stephen, I didn't realize it's been so long since we had you on, but it was December of 21. He is a professor of practice at the uh, and director of the LBJ Urban Lab uh, there in Austin. And also joining us, Sherry Greenberg, the Assistant Dean for State and Local Government Engagement. She's a professor of practice and a fellow of Max Sherman Chair in the State and Local Government Department there too. Guys, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate you joining us and uh, raising a toast to Wheeler here and his new new uh, newfound career coming up, it looks well, like. Well, they're not really raising a toast. I guess we should have provided beers too. And Sherry, <laughs> uh, you like dark beers? Is that Indeed, right? Indeed, so I do. Okay, so Jason, you should have sent that to her instead of having it <laughs> I should yourself. have. This is like coffee, man. This is like mm -hmm. coffee. I could so, be the taster. <laughs> yeah, we are the tasters. <laughs> we need to work on this scheme. This, I think we've got something cooking here. Uh, you know, I'm really interested, and, and thank you both for being with us, because I think that this is something, like I said, that touches every single Texan, you know, regardless, as Whiteley was saying there, regardless of their income level. We've all noticed what's been going on uh, to varying degrees. And you all put together this, it was a brief that you put together for the 88th legislative session, which is currently underway, uh, just talking about the growing crisis in Texas involving housing. And first of all, I, I, I think with something like this, you know, the rest of us don't really understand how this works. Do they ask you to put this together? Do you put it together and say, hey, you should look at this? How does that work? Well, Sherry, I'll take this question. Um, they didn't ask us. Uh, we uh, pulled together a group of folks, colleagues um, at here on campus. So it's not just the LBJ School, by the way. There's a lot of really great housing experts on campus, both at the School of Architecture, uh, Center for Regional Planning, um, the Business School in McCombs, as well as the Law School. So a lot of folks do it tackling the, the housing issues. Um, but about a year and a half ago, uh, the president, President Hartzell, had put together a task force that was really interested in this idea of how the university could contribute to the conversation around affordable housing um, here in Austin. And Cherry was part of that uh, that that work, and it was it was led by who now is the dean of the social school of social work here, Alan Cole. And it was a great task force that came together that looked at um, what could we do here in Austin, and what particularly could the university do to help alleviate some of the housing challenges here here in the city. Um, and over the course of the summer, Sherry and I and others got to thinking, well, it's great to think about Austin, but going into the legislature, what about this conversation of how housing is going to affect uh, Texas? As you guys know, we've talked about this. We're a big state, 26 metros, um, you know, 30 million people now, and and, and housing is becoming an, an affordability issue, a, a prime issue around affordability. So Sherry and I and others came together, brought together a lot of practitioners, academics, policy experts, developers. From across the uh, from across the state, representing both small and big and cities, 
to just raise the question about what what are some ideas that we could look at uh, around uh, around affordable housing in a way to kind of catalog some of the conversations that would what would happen with the legislators. So they didn't ask, but it was just a continuation of a conversation that that I know that um, that is super important to the to to the trajectory of the state. Absolutely, sure. and I think providing context was a, a big goal that we had uh, with this policy brief because we knew that would be a big issue uh, this session and one that transcends uh, parts of the states, you know, transcends party lines, uh, urban, suburban, exurban, rural. This is no longer just an issue in, you know, the urban areas. Yeah. Sherry, let's go through the five different ways to address this. If you can just kind of give us a headline for each of the five and just a, a quick little bullet point on them, then we'll kind of break them apart from there, though. But just give us the five. What are they? Sure. So there were uh, five um, themes that uh, we addressed, and we called these the key themes and issues from our conversations that Stephen was talking about that we had with stakeholders. The first one was the negative effects of local regulations on market rate and affordable housing supply. Then the next was lack of sufficient funding to support development of affordable housing. Well, can then, we, uh, the third can we one, actually go into those just a tiny bit uh, when you give that headline? Because that, sure. that first one, too, is, is interesting. It, you're talking about local regulations there and how that's affecting the housing supply. I think a lot of builders know about this. Uh, maybe some homeowners know about this, especially okay. if they wanted to have a place built. This is, you know, basically, basically you all were saying, hey, you know, maybe we incentivize you know, it for cities to go in and change their regulations and make the process a little bit easier to build homes. Right. So when we talk about the negative effects of local regulations on market rate and affordable housing supply, we're talking about housing for everyone from people who are at 30 percent of the median family income all the way up to, you know, 200 percent. Clearly, we have an issue where demand all across the board is outstripping supply. But there are regulations um, that can, at the local level, inhibit creating more affordable housing. So for instance, minimum lot size, mm -hmm. the size of that you have to have of a lot to build a house on, right? And um, this can have a big effect. Uh, Houston has a much smaller minimum lot size, for instance, than Dallas or Austin. Mm -hmm. um, also, there are things that we call compatibility standards. What can you build next to housing, for instance? And this can have a big effect on uh, the supply that you can create in housing. Mm -hmm. And I want to note that we're talking about supply for both homeowners and renters. Very mm -hmm. often we see that this is just crafted around homeowners, but also uh, the rental market is very much um, in demand and we have um, had more um, demand than we've had supply. Yeah, we now, need we to talk are... about rentals uh, for sure. And, and we do want to dive more into no, that in just, just a few I, minutes. I think we just make that headline even simpler. And it's just cities need to make it easier to build housing in their in their in their communities, right. Right? Mm -hmm. from permitting yeah. to zoning to the way that we think about land use. So just make and, it easier. I think that's one of the things yes. that we're calling for in this first first part. No, I agree. It's and, what, yeah, that, what that, do we do? What do we do to make it easier exactly to build more housing, whether it's housing to buy or housing to rent? That, that's a good one there too. Let's get it. So that's the first one still though. And so uh, give us the headline and a few lines with each of these, like Jason had mentioned, for the okay. remaining four. So lack of sufficient funding to support the development of affordable housing it takes money. We need money for affordable housing. We need more money to build affordable housing, and we need more money to uh, provide subsidies to people who can't afford housing. Hmm. And Stephen, there's money. 
there is money. It's there just a matter money. of where Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's money. I mean, well, I mean, the city of the state of Texas doesn't really spend money on affordable housing. Um, you know, we we I think when you look at the amount of money that we spend just on community housing development, our terrific graduate student that worked with us on this work found that uh, Kayla found that we ranked 49th among other among all the states in the country in terms of our housing, our spending on community housing development. But the one thing that that is that is true is that the state of Texas and cities own a lot of public public land. Um, just spend how much time you walk around, you know, walk around in the urban core, downtown Austin, other places around. There's a lot of open open public space, either parking space or just underutilized space. That's another way we could think about incentivizing, creating resources around affordable housing. So it's not just about cash, but it's also just about how do you have that public good to incentivize housing development? For and, sure. and, and that's an excellent point, because uh, when we talk about the ability to build housing and affordable housing, if you own it, you can dictate what's on it, right? Mm -hmm. How many units, um, the prices of the units. Uh, so on and so forth. So it's a very big deal. And in Texas, you know, we don't have a situation where the state funds the cities. That's not the situation we have in Texas. We do have cities um, that have, for instance, general obligation bonds. Um, Austin's done this for a long time for affordable housing, but that's not enough. And the land is really, really important. Cities have land, school districts have land, community colleges have land. The state, the general land office, right, has a lot of uh, state land that it manages. So these are really important assets if we could you know, deploy them. So, so number one and two, lack of sufficient funding is the second one. The first one you mentioned too, just too much red tape there uh, as well. So get into the remaining three so we can lay these on the table and then start looking sure. at them individually here. So the third one is issues with statewide regulation of affordable housing programs. And um, this, this gets into some of the specific regulations that the state of Texas has, particularly with uh, the low-income housing tax credit, which has been uh, one of the most successful programs. It's a federal program that allows developers, you know, who, who follow certain um, rules um, to get these tax credits. Then the fourth one is issues affecting households receiving housing support. And this gets into um, all, you can't just look at housing by itself, right? There are a lot of issues um, affecting households that receive housing support. There's also, and this is a huge one, you've heard of the housing vouchers, right? right. These are the, the federal, you know, it comes from HUD, the federal vouchers. Um, it's very hard for people to qualify for those. Once they've qualified, it's very hard to, to get one. You can be on a waiting list forever. But then there's another problem, and that is that landlords do not have to accept these housing vouchers. And it's a use it or lose it. If I get a housing voucher, I have to use it within a certain amount of time. And there have been really heartbreaking situations where people waited for many years. They were on waiting lists. They got a housing voucher. And then they lost it because they couldn't find the landlord that would accept it. Hmm. And, and then, then five. Yeah. And then the fifth one is property tax exemptions and public benefits. So this really gets into the whole issue of incentives and, and tax breaks and tax exemptions and public benefits. You know, if we're giving a, a tax break or a tax exemption, what is the community benefit? What's the public benefit? Um, and there are ways that we think that, you know, you could do this to make um, incentivize more of housing and affordable housing being a community benefit and a public benefit. 
Um, you know, when you get down to the bottom of it all, though, when you all put all of this together, Stephen, I, I saw a quote from you in there, and I think that this really summed it up in a way that a lot of, you know, it, it may be the exact sentence that a lot of people have said uh, in the housing market. You said Texas no longer has a cost advantage when it comes to housing. We know in recent years, Stephen, so many people have moved to Texas, and that was always the, the supposed selling point that you know, cheap cost of living, cheap cost of living. You're saying there that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, it is still the calling card for the governor and folks that are doing economic development. I mean, if you look at the messaging around how we're kind of messaging the state, we we continue to message that we're kind of a low cost alternative. Um, you know, I think that it, we have lost the cost advantage. I mean, look at you can look. I mean, Austin, for instance, Dallas, Houston, our metropolitan areas are some of the most are, are now ranking amongst some of the more unaffordable metropolitan areas in the country, and a lot of it is because. Um, we've got kind of two issues going on. One is that we're attracting a lot of people to Texas and we're saying, come, come, come enjoy the Lone Star miracle, so to speak. But uh, in a sense of that, we haven't done enough to, to really think about how to accommodate all the all of the all of the growth. Right. So, I mean, and just to kind of give yourself to give your you know, the listeners some 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 context around that, you know, in the last 10 years. Right. If you like look and I'm just going to use the Austin Metro, if you took the Austin Metro and you took the entire District of Columbia or the city of Milwaukee for anybody that's been that been to DC, and you put it on top of Austin. That's that gives you a sense of how many people have moved to this city and moved to the region. Wow. And so it's a huge amount of growth, right? And any region would be experiencing these challenges about how to keep up with the growth. But in a lot of our cities, particularly like here in Central Texas, our permitting process, our land use process. Um, all the issues that in, um, that you would imagine that you'd want to get as efficient as possible, particularly permitting, we don't do a very good job of that here, right? And we haven't done a very good job of incentivizing folks to do that. So, uh, so there's a need to kind of improve processes. In addition to that, our state, our competitors, other places, you know, New York, California, which we love to compare ourselves to, they're all spending buku's amount of money on affordable housing and thinking about how they're going to address their housing issue. And in the state of Texas, we don't do that. We've always kind of looked to the market to do that. And so it's really kind of, I think this is kind of a wake up call for us as, as, as people that care about cities and the growth of our, our state to say, hey, we got to get our hands around this issue or, or we're going to really start to face the same challenges as these other states. Everyone says, you know, the problems of New York and in California, we don't face those problems. Bull, bull crap. Those, those problems are here. Like we face them now. And if we don't get our hands around them, it's going to be a big issue. Well, let me ask you guys this, because we had on the the uh, Travis County uh, judge, Andy Brown, last fall, and he was talking about the, the need to overhaul the permitting process uh, there in the county. And I was shocked that it takes 18 months, I believe, from the start of the process to the end of it to be able to build a house there. That 18 months, I mean, that's insane. It is. Uh, it is. And, and I look at Dallas, too quickly, Sherry, and, and Dallas got caught up during the pandemic. It didn't have enough people to handle it here. Dallas got so far behind. They bring in a third-party outfit to try to figure it out. There's still a backlog in Dallas. Is anyone in the state doing it right? So that's what I was going to point out, and that is permitting is the black hole. And it's it's whether you look at Austin, whether you look at Dallas, whether you look at other states, I don't know that anybody has figured it out, but there are some smaller communities that have managed to have more streamlined processes. And I think there are some that we should look at. But 
permitting is one of those issues when we talk about regulations of course we need permit of course you have to have fire codes and sanitation sure. without a doubt but we have heard this whether it's in austin or dallas um a, across the state and even across the country well yeah, and, one and of the things one, that i think one of the things ahead, that is doing now as mayor and i think was announced yesterday is they've actually they're having a third party come in and look at the development services process here is just a way to try to clean up the clean up the permitting process because you're right 18 months right can you imagine whole i mean you guys do do the math right can you imagine holding on to this and having to do development kind of holding on and right and then if you're incentivizing affordable housing which is the piece that sherry and i really care about it's even much more of a challenge well, ex well explain, explain that to us explain what incentivizing affordable housing means by the state is is the idea for the state to provide some of the surplus money to cities to 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 find areas to build affordable housing well, I, want, I do want to go back to one of the things that Stephen was talking about, and that is for developers, time is money, right? That's yeah, just sure. the way it is. Um, they're holding on, they their costs are rising, they have loans. So for developers, time is money. And I think this issue of time is important. But also when we talk about in incentivizing, you know, right now, um, there's a lot of discussion about uh, property taxes and tax exemptions, but there's also the um, something not to get into the weeds of something called public facility corporations um, that have partnerships with local governments. So we're looking at, uh, can you do more with those uh, revamping uh, that statute to where um, you can get more in the way of affordable housing? If you're looking at doing something with school districts and um, you know the local government code, which people are looking at uh, now, can you do something where you get, if you're giving a, a benefit, where you get more affordable housing? Well, I think a lot so, of people are going to listen to this, though, and they're going to say, you know, uh, you know, they're hearing these two experts and they go, well, gosh, why can't legislators just figure it out? These experts are giving them this roadmap. Why can't my local city council figure it out or the, the zoning board figure it out? In a lot of cases, though, it's not just the elected leaders in these places. It's also the neighbors, the neighborhoods, NIMBY, not in my yes. backyard. I don't want you putting that affordable housing next to where I live. And I don't want you to change, you know, uh, how big a lot size can be because that's going to mess up my neighborhood in the way that I've gotten used to my neighborhood. Isn't that a big part of it? It is a big part. And when, when uh, for instance, I was talking about in Houston, having a much smaller mandatory lot size you know, than Austin. That means you can build more houses in Houston. It's just simple math. Um, in Colorado, for instance, we're seeing this with the governor taking some actions in Colorado because of the situation that they're having. In Austin, um, we went through several years of um, city council trying to rewrite what's called the land development code, but it's, you know, the regulations that tell you what you can build where and how much. I'll put it with you that way. And there was certainly, when you talk about not in my backyard, there were um, protracted uh, fights and um, lawsuits and um, code next did not proceed. City Council has been over the past couple of years taking pieces and trying to implement some reforms. But yes, yeah. the um, challenge with NIMBY is right. And what's great about I mean, so typically speaking, people who live in urban environments tend to be more left leaning, tend to be more progressive. You know, we like to think of ourselves that way. But what's interesting is those folks tend to be a lot pretty, they sometimes can be fairly NIMBY as well, right? And they want to they want to embrace affordable housing. They want to be, you know, all about affordability, inclusivity, and all that jazz. But as long as it's not in my neighborhood, right? And so the vocal minority, right, or the vocal minority, particularly as it relates to housing development, is, is put, a, you know, it's made this really challenging. Here's the other thing I think 
what's interesting to me about 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 this about NIMBYism is that now we've got everyone that kind of sees themselves as the DYI urban expert, right? You know, about housing and things. And so you've taken an issue uh, where there is a lot of really great, you know, great policy work, a lot of really great experts, but then you enwrap that with politics and the emotion of community development, it makes it really, really, really challenging to actually start to move the needle on this. And particularly in a, in a, in a state like Texas, where we don't mandate these issues, right? Like we don't mandate affordable housing or we don't mandate we can't uh, issue. We can't. It's against. It's against the law, right? We and, and and we don't and we we don't eliminate any types of zoning. So, for instance, you know, the state of Oregon, uh, Minneapolis. Yesterday, I think Arlington County, outside of Washington D.C., announced they're getting ring, rid of single-family zoning. Uh, and, and the governor of Colorado is looking at that. That's right. But we don't do that here in Texas, right? We kind of we we are a land state. We are a state that kind of you know kind of sees itself about property and the way we think about that, and so we think of it differently. Which means a lot of these other two, this is where I think it gets challenging for our state. And that is a lot of these other states have a lot more tools in the tool belt, so to speak, to mandate these issues and to make changes than we do uh, here in, in, in the state of Texas, which I think comes back to a point that Sherry made earlier, which is where cities and municipalities and maybe the state and school districts have to start to ask their questions about, okay, what is this all this underutilized space that we have? Because we can mandate that, right? We can use that as a tool in our tool belt to think about how we increase the opportunity for affordable housing in our communities. But it's a, you know, it's a, it is, it's a challenge that Texas is really going to have to get its hands around. And I think it's going to actually require the state to actually want to work with cities and counties to kind of figure this out as opposed to butting heads. I also think that it, there's some generational issues. Um, just as maybe you've seen with um, people who are in an older generation staying in their jobs and then not having the opportunities for younger people. Um, and this is not scientific, but I do think that there are some generational issues with some younger people saying, I want more housing. I want it in my backyard. I need housing, right? I need a place to live. And older people also not leaving their homes, but also saying, no, I don't want that around me, right? So yeah. see, I think- Wheeler's an older guy himself. He's been looking <laughs> at a nice place to move up to, but he just hasn't pulled the trigger on it yet. Maybe maybe this is your uh, inclination to do that, uh, Jason. L- I let will me remind ask everybody that Whiteley is older than me. Yes. <laughs> but, if uh, I can ask how old you are. By four days. Uh, hmm. But, but look, number two, I believe, in the stack here is the lack of sufficient funding. And Stephen, it's what you mentioned a moment ago right. about using this underutilized land that's out there all over the place. I know Dallas County about a year ago, uh, tore down an old courthouse annex in the Oak Cliff neighborhood just south of the skyline, and they they built 98 single-family homes on this mm-hmm. one piece mm-hmm. of property or two. I want to say that I've heard this in, in other parts of the state. This seems like a growing trend. Is there any idea which city, which county, which school district might have the most uh, unused or underutilized land out there? I don't know. I haven't done a, you know, I haven't done an inventory of every uh, school district or city, you know, a larger area you might be inclined to have more if it's not as dense. But an example, another example I'll point to, in addition to the Dallas one, is what happened here in Austin when the airport moved, right, Mm -hmm. to what used to be the Air Force Base, Bergstrom left, and the airport moved there. And then what had been the airport, Muller, the city owned that land. And that allowed the city to bring in a master developer and plan a develop the Mueller development that, that actually is a national model. And it has 
affordable housing, it has market rate housing, you can't distinguish between them, but because the city owned the land, the city could do that. There was another example of some land that the state owned in central Austin, it's called the Grove. The, the, uh, the city did not purchase that land when the general land office of the state of Texas was putting it up for sale. A private developer did. So in that case, the city was not able to control, let's say, um, as easily the development and the amount of affordable housing. So I think owning the land is really key. Can I, can I throw another idea? I know I'm going to just pivot for just a second. One of the other things I think is important about the housing conversation here in Texas is that as we're kind of describing this today, we're talking about major cities, Austin, Dallas, you know, Houston, et cetera. But this really, this is not just a, this is not just a, a, a urban core issue. Like this is a suburban issue as well, right? I mean, I do a lot of advising work, economic development advising work, uh, and, I, and I've and i been doing some recent work in, 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 in North Texas and in the community I worked with will go unnamed. But one of the interesting things about working in that place was, was trying to get their policy leaders and their city council really, uh, to understand that they need a new type of housing development, right? So your point, Jason, earlier about the single family and how Texas kind of continues to wrap its arms around the single family. In addition to all the everything that that, that Sherry and I've suggested and we're talking about and our and our and our colleagues wrote about, the idea of getting Texans to embrace a different type of housing, multifamily housing, rental housing, that's a big thing for us to do as well. And that's going to require our local kind of our local leaders, particularly not just in the urban cores, but in our suburban communities, to really wrap their hands around as well. Because uh, if we're going to offer you know workforce housing, housing to our you know the folks that do, uh, fire, you know firefighters, policemen, all the types of uh, service based work, that's going to require a different type of housing stock than just that traditional single family housing stock that a lot of suburban communities in Texas really kind of continue to wrap their hands and around. Yes, a mind and, shift, and rental, rental as well as purchasing. And that's why I was saying that this is, yes, this is urban, this is suburban, exurban, even rural areas now all across the state. And there are types of housing. Um, there's a term called missing, mil, missing middle. And this is a type of housing where if you look at it from the outside, it looks like just maybe uh, it's a single family home, right? Um, and you walk in and you see this in older cities, maybe a St. Louis or, or a Milwaukee, and it looks just like a single family home. But you walk in and it's actually six apartments, blends in great with the neighborhood. This, and there are other you know, architectural styles, but this missing middle is very important in um, our housing stock and something that we do need to embrace. Here's another thing. If, if, if there's a really big problem with creating affordable housing, I guess the next logical question is, how do you feel about having more homeless people on the streets? Uh, because more and more people are not able to find a place that can fit their budget. Uh, we were looking at the, the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies. I've done stories on this. Uh, Texas has lost 49%, 49% of its low rent housing stock from 2011 to 2019. Very few homes available for people who are in that low rent category. Uh, recently, the state said, hey, we've got some rent help for you. If you're having trouble making the rent, you can you know, call in. We've got millions of dollars available uh, and you can apply for this and we're gonna keep it open for you know a couple of weeks or whatever. They shut it down within a day or two, I think it was, because they were overwhelmed with responses. A lot of people out there are already having trouble making ends meet. And right. if there is not a solution found for affordable housing, 
it seems like in many of those cases, you know, some of those people are not going to have anywhere else to go except the streets. That's exactly right. I say that, you know, homelessness and affordable housing many times are joined at the hip, mm -hmm. that you may have a person or a family that's just barely holding on. It's only one increase in the rent or one hospital bill, right, that, that puts them over. And these are people who are working and it's just not uh, affordable. And so this is a situation that has become fairly dire. And it does require, in many cases, subsidies where you, you have funding that, it, that people can qualify for to subsidize and offset the rent or the rent increases uh, because they're so cost burdened. You know, we say if you're spending more than 30% of your income on your um, housing plus your utilities or your mortgage plus your utilities, your cost burden. But if you're spending more than 40% of those plus your transportation, you're really cost burdened. And so many people, though, hate to hear that word subsidies yeah. when we're talking yes. about low-income housing. They do. But can, can one of you connect the dots for me here? What if I am wanting to step up and upgrade to a better home than I'm in right now? If there is a total lack of housing and a lack of affordable housing, is that upgraded home that I'm going to try to go to, is that also more expensive because we have a lack of housing on the, the lower end as well? Yeah, I mean, it's a you're putting pressures on the on the demand of the market, the market, right? I mean, it's supply and demand, right? And so, even even your sort of your middle your middle sort of market rate housing becomes much comes much more expensive. One other point that I think that Sherry hit on that that, that we don't talk a lot about Texans is um is that uh, is the hidden cost of transportation, right? So in Texas, in addition to the housing challenge that we face, we also remember. What makes our housing challenge even a little bit more exponentially more challenge is then you throw on the you throw on the the transportation costs, the idea that you got to own a vehicle, right? The idea that you got to have you got to pay for gas and all the things that come along with that, um, and so that actually makes the 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 housing affordability issue, particularly for someone that's on the cusp, as Sherry just described, even much more challenging. Because how do you get to a job? How do you get to a pay, uh, an, an employment opportunity? If you don't have the transportation in a state that hasn't really, really done a very good job of, of thinking about its urban transportation system. I will say this. You ask about successful issues around homelessness. There are some good examples of, of cities. And, I mean, the best example of, I think, in the country that a lot of folks point to is as kind of the 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 the, the golden star of, of of dealing with its its housing its homeless uh homeless crisis is is Houston. Houston. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the coalition for uh, the coalition for the homeless yes. out of Houston, public private. The idea that um, led with uh, a strong mayor system and county system, where they by the way got county, which tended had been it for a while was more red than blue. Got those folks to come together to understand exactly what you described is that if, if we don't think about the housing, not only do we not want people on the streets because it's inhumane, but if we don't if we don't alleviate some of the pressure in the housing, we we create a housing issue for everyone. And so they, you know, they've done a fairly good job of taking federal dollars and being smart about asking for federal dollars. That's one of the things that we don't do very good in Texas is that we leave a lot of money kind of on the table. And so they did a very, you know, that's a co that's an example of, of of a place that the of an example of a, a, a place in Texas that understands this issue. And I know that, you know, as we think about work, I know Sherry spends a lot of time thinking about this here in, in Austin, but yes. as Austin's kind of grappling with this, Houston's a model that, that Austin's kind of looking to to say, how do they get it right? And when we've got it really, really wrong. Right. And that's right. And 
um, not only do does Texas have a tendency to leave money on the table, but also to be in silos, right? Another thing that Houston has done is pull together their resources, public, private, nonprofit, and not be working, you know, out of these silos, which is um, not the best use of resources. Oh, no, number five on the list here too talks about property taxes. We've talked a lot about property taxes here on Yolitics and, and how it's just unsustainable. Stephen, I think we had that conversation with you. Uh, a mm -hmm. year and a half ago. The, the Senate most recently uh, passed mm -hmm. unanimously the increase in the homestead exemption from $40,000 to $70,000. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick told me he wants to get it to $100,000 before he leaves office. He is running for a third term, he says, so it, it might mm -hmm. be a while on that. Uh, but but there are other options, obviously, under consideration. The House isn't really on board with that yet. Maybe they'll come to an agreement. Are, are any of them likely to have the, the same impact that, that uh, another one would, or is this just another tool in the toolbox that added together, you know, cumulatively would, would have an impact? I think it's it's another tool in the toolbox, but, the but you know, in, increasing that homestead exemption is helpful. That's a very different approach than, of course, what the House is looking at, which is lowering the cap, right? And so those are, those are very different. And a lot of- Wh which, one, which one's better, Sherry? Um, so- um, I'm gonna make her take a stance here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I'll let the legislature figure that out. I will. What's really gonna die on, Sherry? <laughs> uh, I will say they're very different. I will also note that a lot of the businesses in Texas are concerned about um, lowering the cap because they're concerned that it'll create a Proposition 13, as we saw in California. Ex explain lowering the cap, Sherry, for our listeners who might not know what that means. And you know, Proposition 13 was huge in California. It was. Uh, explain lowering the cap. So. Um, the amount by which um, your uh, your appraisal can increase, right? Um, you know, there's a cap on that. So if you go from 10%, let's say to 5%. So the right. amount by which your appraisal can increase. And what happened in California many years ago with something called Proposition 13 is there was a limit put on that. And what it meant is that people, number one, never moved. And they, you know, because they didn't want to have an increase when they moved. And they and you, it really had a, a severe effect on um, housing supply and availability, and also on funding the public schools. So there are a lot of I know I've heard from a lot of business interests in Texas that they're very concerned about that. Um, we'll see what happens, but that's the approach that the that the House is looking to take versus the Senate, which is looking to, as you were just discussing, increase that homestead exemption. That exemption you get on your property taxes, it, it is the place where you're actually living. So a couple of things about property taxes. One, as a homeowner, I, I welcome the the homestead exemption being raised. And I do too. <laughs> but, I third that. I third uh, that. <laughs> but I think, you know, I think one of the things that we say in the brief and and, and Sharon and I have said this conversation is that a lot of folks when Texas are our elected officials think about uh, the issue of housing, that is the only policy lever that they go to start to pull, right? And it is always about property taxes. And the challenge of the property taxes, as 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 we all know. Is that it benefits it benefits people that own property, homeowners, right? It does nothing for renters, renters. right? So um, that to, and 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 in fact, you know, when we think about like urban development, economic development issues, a lot of your your sort of economic engine, your mobile young knowledge based class, they tend to be renters, frankly, right? They don't tend to be homeowners. And so the other the thing I think that we have to think about here in Texas is is around around how do we do, what can we do for renters as well to help right. address these issues? And not just sort of monolithically think about 
just property taxes, property taxes, property taxes. Yes, it's an issue here in our state, but it, th there's the issue of affordability has to be, I think, broader than that for sure. And and yes, this is only one tool that helps a specific subset because, as we said when we started the conversation, this is not just about homeowners; it's about renters. And when you think about it from a landlord's uh, standpoint, if there's an increase in property tax, that's going to be passed along to the renter. If there's a decrease in property tax, is the landlord going to pass that along to the renter in a tight market? And, you know, uh, you can answer that for yourself. So I, I do think that we must, as Stephen said, be broad in our thinking and think about different um, types of housing and people who need housing, um, whether they're homeowners or renters, at different income levels and across the state in different geographic areas. Yeah, that rental piece is a huge part of this, you know, especially, you know, let's talk about DFW here. DFW has a home ownership rate of 56 percent. Uh, read between the lines there, 44 percent of people are renting. Uh, there is a shortage of rental homes. And so you're, you know, maybe pushed to apartments there. Uh, and then you look at apartment construction has been exploding. But I've done a piece on this. The vast majority of those new units being built are, quote unquote, luxury units. Right. And so you're running out of options everywhere you turn. Uh, and, you know, maybe your landlord gets a break if, you know, the homestead exemption is increased or, you know, they get a little bit of a break there that may not necessarily be passed along to you, the, the renter. So as you mentioned, you know, lawmakers, are, if they're really going to do something here, are going to have to tackle this, it seems like, from so many different angles. But we've been seeing a lot of bills popping up. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm not going to say that lawmakers for sure read the brief that you all put together for them. I mean, they're right down the street from you there. They've got to be aware of you. Uh, but I will say that some of the proposals that we're looking at from the legislature go directly to these points mm -hmm. that you all are mm -hmm. making. So I think it got read. Yeah, maybe. Have <laughs> y'all uh, uh, have y'all heard free. from any lawmakers? You're super, you're super optimistic. I mean, I, regardless, I'm just happy that they're looking at the issues, right? And yeah, considering and look, I mean, broader I think, changes. Yeah, and the other thing I would say too is this: like, I, you know, I, I think that it's starting to seep through through a lot of policymakers that this is becoming not just an issue of do we you know do uh, it's not just an issue of compassion it isn't it should be an issue of compassion right but it is becoming it's becoming an economic development issue for the state it's right. becoming an issue around competitiveness for the state um you know and particularly for for places that are trying to attract you know think about you, you were mentioning you're drinking your beer from taylor texas Think about what's going to happen out, y'all. Think about what's going to happen out in Taylor, Texas, with that Samsung, Samsung is about to happen. Right, that's, that's right. That's right. And by yeah. the way, Taylor, Texas has no how, no no housing to accommodate no. that, right? And so no. those that that municipality, those inner those inner ring suburb, those outer ring suburbs in there are going to are going to grapple with those issues. And so I think that issue now for us is like, how do we get state official, uh, you know, elected officials, both. I know a lot of times we always talk about the legislature, but also like those county and city officials to understand that housing has to be tied to anything that you do in terms of urban or economic development going forward. Like and, it's not just enough to yes. attract the company and the people, but now we got to have, a, have a, place, a place for these people to live, right? And if not, we're, we're not, it's, we're just going to continue to feed this kind of crazy cycle. Uh, that's right. And you're talking about suburban or exurban or even areas that recently were rural that are developing, they want to attract business. Well, first of all, if employees can't afford to live there, 
right? Then how, how am I going to uh, locate my business there, right? If, if I know that my employees can't afford to live there. Beyond that, just having the supply in general is so important. So from an economic development standpoint, yes, this is a real issue across the state. And just understand like what those major developments are going to do to the pressure of the market, right? right? Think about Tesla and Del Valley. I mean, we can go down the list, right? We can kind of check the list about what that looks like. And so that's why I think when we talk about housing and say it's an it, it's a it's a kind of a house is on the fi on fire for us. It is about everything we talked about here, but it's also just understanding as the state wants to continue to, you know, win these big deals, you know, bring different residents here, all that jazz as it relates to to, to the message of that we're open for business. There's got to be a housing solution for for this, or the problems only begin to become more challenging, more acute as we go forward. You know, we get back to that very mundane supply and demand. It's real. <laughs> yeah, and and you led to my last question here, Stephen, and and that is the house is on fire here. Making any changes, it, it, these five ideas are fantastic, but you know the, the wheels of government move very slowly. Making this happen, rolling this stuff out, is going to take some time. How much does this threaten the Texas miracle? Stephen, I'll start with you. And, and Sherry, I want you to answer that as well. It's huge. It's 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 just, it's, I mean, the, the advantage for Texas has always been our cost of living. Um, and in fact, that's kind of, if you think about how we have man, we've built our model around uh, the attraction of companies, as well as the attraction of people has been around the cost advantage. Um, you know, come to Texas and open up your business. You got educated labor that has low cost of labor. Uh, it's not as expensive. Well, as housing costs rise, residents and, and, and that, that workforce is going to require to be paid differently. So that's going to change the dynamics of, of, what that, of what that looks like, even from a business attraction standpoint. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's hugely important as it, as it relates to, to, econo you know, to the economic development. The last thing I'll say is that I don't know that I buy the Kool-Aid. I don't know that I buy the, the story that we can't make some, some quicker changes around this. Just doing some stuff like cleaning up your permitting process, rethinking about some of the stuff at the municipality level. Mm -hmm. That those are e those aren't easy wins, but those are quick, quicker wins, ER wins that can really start to change the dynamics of this, uh, both in the urban core and the suburban areas that can maybe start to eat on this around the edges a bit. But it's a big issue for us in terms of our state going forward. It's it's a huge issue for our state, and you know I can see San Francisco in the headlights, right? I mean I. I can see where we are headed and it's it's not a good situation. Um, and it is important that we have some wins, whether it's permitting or for instance, minimum lot size. There are some things that we could do right now that would make a big difference. But when we talk about that cost advantage, it was real, right, um, in uh, Texas. But now when you talk about people moving here, if you're a very high income person, you move here, you don't have to pay an income tax, right? But for middle income people who move here, and there have been studies on this, and you can look at data, they may actually be worse off, right? Because they don't have the high income. And so the income taxes were not a big deal to them. But now they're paying very high rents or property taxes and sales taxes and other expenses. So this is a huge issue for the state of Texas. If Whiteley gets one last question, so do I, uh, and I will give uh, different questions to both of you. Stephen, let me start with you, because I hear this so often from people who are young and starting out looking for a first home. I look, I hear this from people who are older and are looking to downsize. 
this mm -hmm. lot size idea seems like it is a crucial piece and it's felt by the, the person on the street. I hear people so often say, I wish they would just build a smaller home that I could afford. I don't need the huge home on the huge lot. If I could just start or downsize to something that is smaller, that has a smaller price tag. How crucial of a component is that here? Because it's not the way we've done it here in Texas traditionally. Yes and yes. Yeah. And, and I would go, I would take it a step further, which would be all the things that we know that young, you know, educated, creative knowledge class, however you want to call these people, you know, whatever you want to, whatever moniker you want to put on them, you know, they want walkability. They want urban lifestyle. They want restaurants. They want, you know, dynamic, uh, you know, placemaking, all those types of things that come with living in urban communities. You know, you can even see this happening in our suburban communities, like Frisco and other places kind of doing that. All that comes with smaller lot size, walkability, all the things of it that we believe to be good in terms of in terms of what density has an opportunity to offer us comes with the idea of, of smaller lot sizes. And a lot of those amenities also come potentially with lower price tags, right? If you're able to think about how you compactly using lands. Look, it comes back down to, three. It, you know, economies of, of communities are, are, are three things, land, capital, and people, right? As Sherry, as Sherry was saying, you know, and you, and you add supply and demand on that. And the way we use our land, the most valuable resource that communities have, frankly, dictates a lot of things about price. It dictates a lot of things about the things that we can actually look to get out of our communities as well. So, yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of of rethinking about uh, of thinking about that. Um, there's some also good stuff in legislature about permitting. I think there's some good ideas trickling out there that I'm that I'm a huge fan of. And Sherry, uh, I'll close with this to you. Uh, you you know deal with government relations a lot. Uh, you have been at the government level as well. Um, it seems like we're at a crossroads here when when we listen to the two of you. Uh, this seems like a real opportunity. What if it's a missed opportunity though? What if this legislature finishes out without doing meaningful things regarding housing, or maybe only tackles one piece of the puzzle? Uh, is, you know, we have two years before the next legislative session. What happens in that two years if we don't tackle this now? Yes, and, and you have opportunities during the interim. You have interim committees that will be looking at um, these issues, I feel confident. You have agencies that have rulemaking authority. You have opportunities at the local level with your cities, your counties, and your school districts. And Sometimes in a legislative session, you have the opportunity to address a conversation and you have the opportunity to start a conversation in a bipartisan way that is statewide. And if you're doing that and you are tackling some of the issues and you are looking at it during the interim and your local officials are looking at it, then I'm going to say that's a glass half full. Good. Interesting. Stephen Pettigo and uh, Sherry Greenberg, both from UT Austin, they are two of the nine authors, I believe, on uh, a report called the uh, called Affordable Housing uh, Challenges and Opportunities in Texas. Always great to talk to you guys. Uh, thanks so much for the insight, and I can't wait to see how Texas tackles this or how local cities and counties tackle this. It'll be interesting to see, but we will be able to measure it with house prices and and uh, the market itself. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you both. We'll, we'll have to follow up when we uh, see how this all goes. I really appreciate you uh, sharing your expertise here. But sure. before we before we let our listener go to uh, Wheeler, in, in case anyone wants to subscribe to the uh, Harvard Joint Center for Housing Journal, how, how would they go about that, Jason? Are you? Are, are, I think you're ribbing me there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Wheeler, Wheeler uh, yeah. always finds the most, uh, you know, 
He goes along with drinking beer. Goes along with drinking beer. Right. And this is why he doesn't come prepared with beer because he's always trying to one-up me on these journeys. You know, sometimes this is why I haven't been able to find that gift of yours that I definitely well, got when I was well, on vacation in Europe. I've been busy researching. So Jason these, and Jason. These two understand I would, research. I, Jason and Jason, I went to graduate school in London. So I got, you know, the beer side and the intellectual side wow. too. Yeah, it was yeah, great. That's a good marriage. Yeah. You're, an all, you're an all in one there. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, guys. Thank we you. appreciate it. And uh, we will Take see care. you next week. Okay, y'all. The conversation doesn't stop here. Find us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Yolitics.